This is the We the People, Our American Story podcast. My name is Tina McCafferty. Join me every week to hear the remarkable stories of veterans, combat survivors, first responders, and American patriots in their own words. If you are pro-freedom and pro-America, you are in the right place. We the People, Our American Story is the podcast for Americans who fiercely and unapologetically love America. Welcome to another episode of We the People, Our American Story. I am thrilled to have as my guest today, Charlene Wells. Charlene, welcome. Thank you, Tina. So great to be with you. Now, just to let all of you out there in podcast world know, Charlene and I tried this once before and it didn't work out too well. <laughs> it was a <laughs> so, storm or something. <laughs> yeah. So as I was joking with Charlene, we hope the podcast gods are with us this day. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, let's get started then. So Charlene, you spent a lot of time outside the country with your family growing up. Can you share with us some of the places that you lived? What impact did that have on you as far as appreciating America? Absolutely. So I was born in Asuncion, Paraguay. My dad was an executive with Citibank at the time. And then we moved to northern Argentina in the same role, then to Ecuador, um, Mexico. We lived in Santiago, Chile. Most of my high school years were in Buenos Aires, Argentina. And I have vivid memories. I went to the American school, but it was more like an international school. But we, you know, we had the American flag there. I remember one time we were driving down and, and we did this often. We were driving downtown Buenos Aires and my parents would go the long way so we could go around the U.S. Embassy and we could see the flag. And we loved seeing our flag. And when I would see those really handsome Marines outside, <laughs> I got really homesick. You know, I even though I grew up outside the United States, I always felt very, very American. My, my mom's from Texas. My dad's from Nevada. Um, my uncles all served in the military in World War II, in the Korean War, in Vietnam. Um, so I grew up very patriotic, but especially when you grow up outside the United States, I think you have a very different appreciation for what this experiment of democracy became. And even through all our flaws and our faults, it is a such a unique and blessed country. And you see it when you're outside of the country and you see that there are a lot of people that want to be there and want to learn there. They want to go there for education. They want to go there to pursue their dreams. And they like to copy a lot of what Americans do. So I, I saw a lot of that, you know, copying Americanism uh, in many different ways. But I just remember as we flew back to the United States, and we landed and we came every now and then, but, but as we moved back and we landed in New York City and the pilot came on and he said, uh, welcome to all those of you visiting the United States. And if this is your home, welcome home. And everybody started cheering. And I just thought that was the coolest thing, you know, to, to land the United States. And it was New York. It's not even my home. It was Utah. So it was just great. Um, but I think it's a really special experience to grow up outside the country and look at it. On, a, on an outer perspective. How old were you when your family first moved to another country? Were you born outside well, the country? I was, yeah, I was born in Paraguay. Okay. Yeah, so I grew up all over South America. In fact, I was speaking Spanish with a friend from Colombia and she stopped me and she goes, 
I'm trying to figure out your accent. <laughs> you said, probably have a pretty weird I, accent. <laughs> yeah, I do. She goes, she goes, I'm trying to figure it out which country it's from because, you know, all the Spanish from the different countries in Central and South America, it all has a different accent, right? Of course. And so when I told her about me growing up, she goes, that's what it is. You have a South American accent. <laughs> Did you not come home then until you started college? Um, no, we came home between the ages of seven and 11 or 12, we were back up in Utah. And then I moved up the second half of my junior year. So I finished high school in Utah. Oh, okay. That's oh, that's nice. You went to BYU. Mm -hmm. What yep. was your um, pursuit of studies there? Interestingly enough, I started my um, schooling at BYU in piano performance and it lasted one lesson because I, I had this lesson with the piano professor and he goes, okay, I want you to practice for five hours a day. And I suddenly went, oh, I don't love it that much. <laughs> so now wait, was there an actual degree in that? Yeah, piano performance. Really? My mom was a concert pianist and I had grown up playing the piano and you know, I just, I thought that's what I was gonna do next. Um, I don't know why, but anyway, so I very quickly decided that's not for me. And then I thought, well, international relations, and then I got into communications, and and I kind of bounced around a little bit, but I ended up in broadcast journalism. In the middle of all this, your college life, Miss America was in there yeah, somewhere, right? <laughs> I was 20 years old. I was a sophomore. And um, wow, what an experience for a 20-year-old. I got to visit almost uh, 48 states. And fell in love with every state. There was something about every state that I just, I just loved. And part of that was having that deep appreciation for America as a whole. And so I didn't feel like I was tied to one state. I had, I had only been in Utah up to that point, but, um, but I just fell in love with the whole country. You know, from Vermont. Oh my gosh, in Vermont, um, I got a maple tree from the Von Trapp family that was running a nursery there. I know it was just little cool things like that all the way over to Oregon. And I remember being part of the Portland Rose something. What was it? And I got knighted and, and see, I've got to go back and look at my journal and, you know, to Texas, to Minnesota. I mean, it just, we have such a fascinating country and I just fell in love with the whole country. But as a 20 year old, there were very difficult things about that year. You get kind of a PhD in public relations. You really do. And you learn a lot of lessons, hard lessons um, as a youngster trying to, to figure out how to do things right. And, um, and I finished up that year really feeling like I had, uh, uh, you know, gained an advanced degree in, in public relations and community engagement and then came back to BYU and finished my degree in broadcast journalism and uh, and immediately went to ESPN. So I was working my junior senior year as working with the local uh, CBS affiliate at the time and did a lot of sideline football and then uh, went off to ESPN was the third female to work at ESPN and covered college football, um, Kentucky Derby, wow. French Open, America's Cup. It was World Cup soccer was probably my favorite. It was fun. If I may go back to Miss America, growing up, yeah. was that your dream? It was not. <laughs> I didn't even know about it. No, I was, I was such a tomboy. So that's why people that knew me, they were like, huh? <laughs> it was very shocking for them. Um, no, this was a complete accident. I grew up wanting to be in the Olympics. And then 
moved to the States and found out I wasn't fast enough. <laughs> what sport would you have wanted to do? Oh, track and field. Hurdles was my thing and high jump. And down in Argentina, I was pretty competitive. And then I get to the States, it's like, uh, nope. <laughs> yeah. So, so much for that dream. But yeah, that was um, was something that, that I really enjoyed. And anyway. I don't want to get into the specifics of it, but we know there was a little bit of controversy the year before with Miss America. And yeah. you, you already have that much stress on you as you become the Miss America. Did you right. feel the added stress because of the previous year or was that really not in the scenario for you? Were you able to separate from that? You know, that's a great question. Um, but, you know, I had never been Miss America before. I didn't, I'd never watched it until I was in it. So it was not something that I was really familiar with. It was just something that I, I kind of got on this train for cash scholarship and there you go, you're, you're at the nationals and suddenly you win. And so um, I could have been more prepared, uh, but I just really didn't think that I, I would have won. But when you're in it and with what had happened the previous year, I was prepared in terms of one or two answers because I thought, well, maybe I'll get asked about it in my Miss America interview, but I didn't think about it in terms of once you win, then it's an entire year of being asked about it every single day because I was in five cities a week and every single city you go to, there's a press conference. And guess what the number one question is? Every single time I had to, how do I act like this is the first time I've heard that question? <laughs> yeah, that must right? have been exhausting. You know, it it was, but then I got, I kind of got used to it. I, I'd have to say, Tina, the first six months were pretty brutal. And as I look back on it now, there were several times I came close to a nervous breakdown just because it, the pressure is so intense and it's um, constant. There's no let up. You don't get breaks. Uh, you're on the road constantly. So now we hear about celebrity athletes talk about, you know, I need a break. It's It's about their mental health. You didn't do that back then. You didn't do that at all. You didn't say I need a break. So you have to just suck it up and find a way to suck it up and move on. And quite honestly, I learned a lot about what I can do. And after six months, I figured stuff out and kind of started rolling with things and figured it out and, and how I can handle stress more by putting the spotlight on other people in a good way. So for instance, I'd show up at yet another town where they have yet another band at the airport gate and welcoming you. And instead of feeling, oh my gosh, the spotlight's on me again. And, you know, I would immediately try to learn more about the mayor or learn more about the famous people in the town. And then when I would have to speak and it was my turn to speak, then I put the spotlight on them and I'd talk about them and the great things that they're doing. And I learned that if I did that, um, my mistakes were kind of a non-issue. If I would make a mistake, the audience didn't care because I was putting so much spotlight on them and making them feel good. And I didn't learn that until about six months in. I was about the first six months, I was more, more worried about what am I going to say? And what are they going to think about me? Do you think there's a misunderstanding by most of us, like myself, who have never been in a pageant, who have never been right. Miss America, that maybe <laughs> most of us think it's all makeup and pretty dresses <laughs> and going out to dinner, that we don't understand the rigors that are involved, the stress that is oh, yeah. involved in it? Well, and when you think of 
big world problems, that's one of those, those things that you go, ah, that really shouldn't be a problem. They've put themselves in that stressful situation. But the reality is, it's one of the highest stress situations I've ever been in, which kind of makes it easier for me to do other stressful jobs. And that's what kind of prepared me to do a stressful job like ESPN uh, was that. So as I look at it from everybody else's perspective, which probably would have been mine, it was a pageant. It's a beauty pageant. My One of my favorite movies is Miss Congeniality. Yeah. I just love that movie. And I laugh harder than anybody else. And at the end of the movie, people learn a little bit about, you know, the anti-stereotype and, you know, what it's, what it's really like. For the most part, the women that get involved, they don't grow up thinking they're going to be in that. It's really something like the Miss America last year, she was a PhD in pharmacology. And she just, that was her first time being in. And it really honestly was because of $50,000 in cash scholarship. That goes a long ways. Yes, you know? it does. Not as, not oh, as far as it used that. to, but. <laughs> not as far as it used to. <laughs> you know, maybe it's 75,000 now. Oh, I can't remember. Mine was 50,000. So it's probably more. But anyway, so most of them don't grow up in little tiny pageants because they usually burn out by the time they get older, mm. right? If they're in the smaller ones. So it's generally speaking, those who are not familiar with the pageant and to update everybody, um, Miss America is over a hundred years old now. And wow. about five wow. years ago, we got rid of swimsuit. I don't know if people know that there's no swimsuit. In fact, there are zero points that are attributed to outer beauty, nothing, which I like, it's kind of cool, you know? So it's really focused on trying to bring in the, the young women that really want to advance their education and get some help doing it and, and that have a talent. Now, it used to be have a performing talent, but after our Miss America a couple of years ago, who did a whole chemistry lab experiment on stage, uh, <laughs> it's like, well, I never really thought that was a talent, but look at that. Who was the MC that year? Ooh, the MC. I don't know. I don't remember, but it was Camille Schreier was the Miss okay. America. Because was Burt Parks, is that his name? Was he Miss America? He did Miss America okay. for years. Did you ever yeah, meet I him? Think his last one. I did very briefly. Okay. I want to say it was when it was right before he died, but he was not the MC my year. Okay. I'm just thinking because when we was when most Americans, at least for me, when you think of Miss America, you think uh -huh. of Burt Parks because he Burt was Parks singing, there she is. Yes. yes, he was the standard for many years. Right. And you know, Miss America was the first reality TV show. We got the whole thing started. <laughs> I never thought of it as a reality TV show. I guess that's oh, true. Yeah. We just didn't have all the behind the scenes drama like we get in today's reality TV shows. Or did we just not see that? <laughs> right. Well, it was never, it was never broadcast. And you know, as I think about it, my week back there, there wasn't any drama. There's, there's just no drama because you don't have enough time really to get to know anybody. Well, here's an interesting question for you. At least I think it's interesting. What was your audience numbers for Miss America versus what was your biggest audience for ESPN? Ooh, okay. ESPN, I have no idea. You have no idea what I the just, biggest event you covered as far as audience um, numbers? If I were to guess, I would say World Cup mm. because 
World Cup, as you probably know, that's probably the largest sporting event in the world. Now, in 1994, the U.S. team was in the running. In fact, they had a good showing against Brazil. They really did. They were in the running, and the World Cup was in the United States. And I was the host of World Cup Today, the weekly highlights program. I was also the feature reporter following around the U.S. team. So I would have to say um, maybe that one was the biggest, either that or college game day. I'm not sure which numbers were bigger at the time. Um, But for Miss America, I do know that the numbers for the 1984 broadcast were the highest ever because of the previous scandal. Um, And that was at about 150 million viewers, which is crazy. That's like Super Bowl numbers, right? So at the time... Yeah, that the, the scandal kind of caused everybody to watch. And after I won, my press conference was unreal. It was about 500 people from all over the world. And they were there because they wanted to see what would happen, who would be selected to represent Miss America. You know, there was kind of a debate going on uh, leading up to Miss America. Who is the ideal person to represent Miss America? Now, I cer- certainly didn't see myself as that. I didn't know what I was seeing, but I saw myself after the win as, okay, maybe I'm just representing. That doesn't mean I'm the best at all. I'm just representing. And, you know, I did get a lot of people saying, well, you won because you were a Mormon. And that's Mm. why, you know, and and there were lots of uh, cartoons showing me in pioneer gear and and that (laughs) kind of thing. didn't know that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And another one. Here's one of my favorites. Um, Bob Hope opened his show with jokes about me. He said, did you know she's uh, she's the new Snow White or something? There were seven dwarves seen following her. At first, I was like really annoyed. I was like, well, you know, hopefully that's not why I was selected. And then I realized, okay, if that's why I was selected, then what you're saying is all the others were didn't have any values at all well Mm. of course that's that shouldn't be the message i met so many amazing women of every kind of religion and background and you know values or orientation so anyway it was it was kind of interesting to go through that (laughs) well i remember watching miss america with my mom and sisters that year and rooting for you and when you won of course we were so excited it was a thrilling time i hope that you saved or were able to collect some of these little comics and <laughs> jabs at you because <laughs> i, I do because i'm sure now you can look at them and just laugh <laughs> oh i do and you know though that year i had to learn so hard to just ignore stuff because you 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 know you're 20 and you take it personally when people are making jokes about you and now i do look back and laugh but at the time it was it was embarrassing and i remember going to school after that year and i wore a baseball cap everywhere i went and kind of kept my head down cuz i just didn't i didn't know if people would be pointing at me and laughing and go, oh, that's the one in the cartoons, or if they'd be proud of me. I didn't know. (laughs) Well, it certainly helped to give you a thick skin for your life, I imagine. When did this book come into play? Uh, Which which one? Kissing a Frog? No, no, what's Kissing a Frog? What's the, I'm talking about about Kissing a Frog? No, what about the biography? (laughs) So the biography, that was the first one. That was written by Sherry Dew. Okay. So that's when I was 20. Uh, I wrote a book about 20 years ago called Kissing a Frog, Four Steps to Finding Comfort Outside Your Comfort Zone. Because really, I, I 
grew up very shy and performing was like the last thing I wanted to do, but I kept finding myself in those situations. Why did you leave ESPN? Uh, raising kids. So I had, I had, was with ESPN seven years full time and I had two and a half kids by the time I left and it was just getting harder. And so then I did freelance for another nine years. And that's when I did things like like uh, French Open and Kentucky Derby and Preakness and other things that allowed me to stay in it. But it was just too hard with little kids and they would want me to drop everything and run over to Los Angeles for this or that. And here's my daughter's birthday party I just planned. So that just didn't work. And then the next nine years that worked out great. And then I got my master's degree and I decided I did not want to go back into television once my kids were in school all day. And I really wanted to get into business. So that's when I used my uh, public relations pseudo degree <laughs> and kind of put that towards good use along with my master's in organizational communications. That's what I'm doing now. I want to uh, read you a title and it is a mouthful, Charlene. Okay. The U.S. Secretary of Defense to the Defense Advisory Committee on Women in the Armed Forces. <laughs> That was an appointment, yes, <sighs> by the Secretary of Defense, and it's uh, the acronym is DACOWIT, so Defense Advisory Committee for Women in the Services. My goodness, and I you know why they use term. acronyms. <laughs> right? And every time I say DACOWIT, it's like, it's, a, it's not a sausage. It's <laughs> It was really awesome. So I was on this committee for four years, it's a four-year term, and um, I was the only civilian on it for a couple of years, so the rest are all these amazing women and men there were you know who are retired four-star generals or of senior enlisted officers and and then there's me and it was really cool to be part of that especially at a really pivotal time in our nation's defense and in our you know social cultural evolvement with gender uh, changes and and especially with women so in 2015 is when I joined and 2016, January 2016, the Secretary of Defense had um, planned that the combat exclusion policy would be lifted, meaning that all jobs in the military would be open to women. That opened up hundreds of thousands of jobs to women that had previously been closed. Interestingly enough, a lot of those positions had been quietly filled by women, but they just didn't get the training needed. For instance, over in Afghanistan, units needed women to go with them. So these are uh, infantry units that are going in to talk to tribal uh, officials, and they needed women to talk to the women to really get the stories of what's going on. And so women would go in with them. They just didn't get the same kind of training. So now it just opened up everything for women. And that was pretty exciting to be part of that and to see you know, what kind of opportunities it opened for women. And again, it's all volunteer force. There's nothing uh, forced about this. It's, it's all volunteer. So it was pretty exciting to see all that happen. What was your role with them? So um, they asked me to be part of any of the strategic communications and marketing side of things. So I immediately dove in. There were several different roles. I was a, a committee chair and they had three different committees. And we looked at everything from childcare to uniforms that would be better for women. Like for instance, the helmet, as you might imagine, women have to wear their hair like in a bun. It's either short or it's in a low bun, but the helmet sits funny on a low bun. 
So one of the things was looking at making a helmet that fits right around the bun or something like that, or pregnancy uniforms or policies that would have to do with opening things up for advancement for women. But my role, they didn't have anybody who specialized in strategic communications. So when I was brought on, they said, we hope that you'll be looking at everything that we do, everything that the Department of Defense does and all the services on in all the communication materials and what are we doing? What can we do better? I actually went through all the websites for every one of the services, Army, Marine Corps, Navy, Air Force, Coast Guard, and I went through every single one of them, including the .mil and the .gov site or the .com. The .com is the one that, that we typically will see as the public and the .mil is the one for the internal audiences. And I went through every single page on every single one of them. And I was specifically looking for imagery. What kind of imagery are we showing to people about how women are being used? It was eye-opening. And I had my own conclusions and I went back to our chairman, she's a retired four-star general. And I said, I think I'm seeing a pattern. Uh, you know, we have roughly 20 to 25% of the women, our, our, our services are women, especially in the academies. But I'm seeing things like 5% of the imagery that show women and almost like 90% of the imagery was showing uh, women in traditional roles. They weren't showing them flying jets like I knew they were doing. They weren't showing them in any of those those real contemporary roles. And so we went through and I and she said, why don't we have our research partner go through and really do fine-tune re research on this? And they did and they came back with even stronger numbers than I had, which really showed that all the services had to make some big changes with the kind of imagery they were showing for women. And so that was kind of cool to have one of the items to make a recommendation to the Secretary of Defense was that every one of the services had to redo all their imagery and update it. And uh, the Secretary of Defense took typically 100% of our recommendations. So that was something that I really put my eyeballs on and it really made some changes. As you were talking about all the different things that you were helping with, it struck me that some of these things you don't even think about. As you were talking about the helmet situation yeah. for women, that's not even uh -huh. something that probably most of us would even think about it. And then when you said uh -uh. it, it's like, that makes a lot of sense. You want to help yeah. it correctly. They want to be protected. <laughs> right. Wow. I know it was one of those things that I didn't even think about either. It was, it was just really interesting. And, and to see what kind of, I know one of the big debates was, okay, if we open up the, um, you know, all the services, every single job to women, Will that mean quotas? Will that mean a lowering of the standards? And there is nobody that fights harder for higher standards and no quotas than women. Nobody wants to be a quota number. They want to be able to prove themselves just like anybody else. But one of the things that the military did that they hadn't been doing for like decades is to revisit the, um, the standards to see if they were actually relevant to today's equipment. And they weren't. Some occupational standards might say you've got to be able to carry 75 pounds if you're the communications person. Well, guess what? A radio doesn't weigh 75 pounds anymore. It weighs like one pound, <laughs> two pounds. So that's what they were doing. And so sometimes the news would incorrectly 
uh, report that they were changing the standards. They were updating them to reflect today's technology that is lighter, it's better. You know, so that's what they were doing. But the standards still have to be super high so that because this, this is life or death and, and the women wanted to be at the top of those standards. So all that all that was being changed with the military was to make sure that the occupational standards were correct. And the physical standards even improved. We were seeing women now, they were expected to do pull-ups. More and more women were doing pull-ups, which was exciting to see that, oh, for some reason, people thought that women couldn't do pull-ups. And so they didn't do them. And then it just took a few women, you know, saying, look, we can do it. And this is how you do it. Um, and it, and it just started changing things. Unfortunately, I'm one of those women who can't do a pull-up. <laughs> I can't either. I can't. I started working on that a while ago and I went, okay, I don't know. I need the right trainer. <laughs> Being in that position, I'm sure you were able to come in contact with so many fabulous women. And I'm wondering uh -huh. if there's one, I know there are several, but if there's one or two that really made an impression on you. Oh gosh, you know, you are so right. There were so, so many. Um, one, uh, she's a retired uh, one-star general. She was in the first female class at West Point. Anne McDonald, phenomenal. And I met her when she was at Fort Carson. I wanna say she was a colonel at that point. And um, I was there to do a presentation and I'd been told she was available. And then her aide came out and said, sorry, she's not available. And I'm like, but I flew all the way from Utah. <laughs> I need to give this presentation. And he went back in and he knew about the Miss America thing, which of course I don't want anybody to know when I'm there professionally, right? And he came back out with her and she came right up to me and she goes, I watched you win. And I went, Aww. no way, no way. And she had grown up with four other sisters and they all watched Miss America. So she brought me in, we became close friends and we're still dear friends today. And that was, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago. Uh, but what a remarkable woman. She's a Black Hawk pilot. Oh, cool. She swam on the West Point team. I mean, just talk about cool. And yet she puts her hair in a twist, a French twist. And she looks, I, I had her judge at Miss America and she's just as phenomenal. And then I've met so many women who are part of the families of the military who have lost their husbands, their sons. One of my best friends, um, Jane Horton, her husband was killed in Afghanistan. And yet she turned her pain into one of the strongest voices back in DC to make changes um, for other grieving families. So they didn't have to go through the same things, you know, when they were advised about their loved one's death. I mean, so many, so many women that are just phenomenal. Um, and, and I, really appreciate them. And Colonel Adele O'Connell, I don't know, even know how to even get started with all of them, but she was the first one that helped me. She introduced me to, to people in the Pentagon. So that was my first time back at the Pentagon. And we started working on projects back there. I just learned so much from them. Incredible women, really, that serve in our military. Charlene, the reason why I asked you to be on my podcast was because my husband actually, and I had no idea about this. He said, you need to see if you can get Charlene Wells on your podcast because she has a project called Remember My Service. So that's what I did for 15 years. 
And then I went back to the Pentagon and worked as director of communications. So um, for remember, my service was one of uh, was just an honor of a lifetime. And what I did is I worked with on our team. We worked with uh, military units, whether it was a small ship, you know, or an amphibious assault ship, or maybe it was the 319th uh, fighter wing, or could have been the the Ohio National Guard, and we helped tell their story. Um, and we did it with commemorative books and uh, short form documentaries. We also worked with the Department of Defense on major commemoratives like the Vietnam 50th and the Desert Storm 25th and the Korean War 60th. And we produced books and uh, long form documentaries that were in the GI Film Festival back in DC. But the thing that I'm most proud of is that we worked with all the Veterans Affairs offices in all 50 states and with sponsors to help deliver copies of these books and uh, documentaries to the veterans themselves. So they were receiving them in distribution ceremonies and, and how great it was to be there with Vietnam veterans who were never really formally recognized, right? When they came home, they were never told welcome home and thank you for your service. And so for us to be able to do that and to be part of their ceremonies, it was incredibly emotional with the Vietnam veterans, more than any other group, I think. Um, but to be able to help tell the story for me, remembering their service is the best way to honor their service and to ensure that we just don't forget. Because as I mentioned, this is an all volunteer force. We will never go back to the draft like we did in Vietnam. This is, these are now incredible American men and women that choose to serve and that choose to be part of our ranks and in our nation's defense in uniform. I've learned a lot over 15 years doing that and then had the great honor of going back to the Pentagon and working. And it was, it was truly an honor. Is Remember My Service still ongoing today? Yes. So um, CEO John Lund is really driving that. Uh, COVID really hit it hard because as you might imagine, um, it was really driven by sponsorship dollars. He's been working that. I went back to DC and then uh, decided to come back to Utah and this time took a position at Mountain America Credit Union. So I'm, I'm hoping to start a veterans and military initiative here. Yes. I'm hopeful. <laughs> yes, absolutely. If you need any volunteers, count me in, Charlene. Right, yes. That is awesome. What do you think... Americans don't understand about this country. I believe that a lot of us have become so complacent. We're so comfortable that it's easy to complain about things that really you shouldn't be complaining about. What misunderstanding is there or what would you like Americans to understand more? Ooh, there's so many directions I wanna go with that. <laughs> um, my first thought is, not very articulate, but I just want to tell people to chill <laughs> and, and be grateful. You know, when I, I went over to Afghanistan in 2009 and did a kind of a handshake tour, and we had just met with the unit that had been at the command outpost Keating that had been ambushed two weeks before, and we lost eight guys. And these guys were still reeling from that ambush. It was one of the deadliest battles of the Afghanistan war. And I met a guy who had been um, nominated, a specialist Ty Carter, uh, who, or Staff Sergeant Ty Carter, who had been nominated for a Medal of Honor. And he told me his story. Um, five years later, he did receive the Medal of Honor, and I was able to go to the White House uh, to see that ceremony with him. But I remember coming back from that, and I had just seen and heard about 
atrocities in Afghanistan, the challenges that other people face. And I grew up, as we talked about, outside of the country where when they talk about inflation, that means prices on the bus change every single day. I mean, that's a different kind of inflation than we have. And um, and if you talk poorly about um, uh, an official, a politician, you're dead. There's differences in, in other countries. And I came home from Afghanistan after just a week, after just a week, and I went to a little league game. And I'm sitting on the bleachers. There are two people that are just getting madder and madder about that they ran out of hot dogs and they're angry and they're yelling at people. And I felt myself, my, my blood started to boil. I'm like, I can see why soldiers come home from where they've been and feel some rage and some PTSD. And I saw nothing. I saw just enough that when I came back, I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. Be more grateful. Everything, almost everything here are first world problems, you know, and we can do so much better. We can do better about how we disagree. One of the big things that I just don't get that we've seen disintegrate over the years is how we disagree. Can we stop that? Can we go back to disagreeing with dignity? And I've learned a lot working in DC. I, I spent a lot of years with Remember My Service going back to DC, whether it was on the Hill or at the Pentagon or, or other locations. And one of the things that I learned was we have become so disconnected, you know, and starting there on the Hill in Congress, they don't stay in DC anymore. Everybody goes home. And back in the old days, they would stay, the old days, 20 years ago, I don't know. Um, they would stay over the weekends and they had bipartisan uh, barbecues or baseball games or things like that. And they would get to know each other's families. And you tend to disagree more agreeably when you know each other. So I think if that's one thing, you know, we have such a blessing of freedom of speech. Can we be wiser about how we use it? And I see our members in the military, our service members, uh, right and left, I will see them say, you know, I disagree with what they're saying about the flag, but I will give my life for their right to do that. That's phenomenal. And I wish that all of us had more of that feeling that, you know what, I may disagree, but let me disagree agreeably or just respect your right to disagree and do that better. What was that like? I'm wondering to be at that Medal of Honor ceremony. That must oh. have been surreal. Oh, chills. Um, and it was with, uh, so President Obama presented him with the Medal of Honor. And I could tell Ty was so humbled. As, as I've met several other Medal of Honor recipients now, I understand why. Because if they're a survivor, yeah. they've survived something where they've lost people. And they have that survivor's guilt. So the last thing they want to be doing is receiving an award. So that's why we don't say Medal of Honor awardees. We say Medal of Honor recipients. They didn't get an award and, and none of them want that award. They did their job and every single one of them I've ever met, they just did their job. So they don't feel like heroes and they in fact feel guilty for surviving. Um, so I knew that he was feeling incredibly uncomfortable with all the attention. Um, and that's, that's hard on every one of these who are still living Medal of Honor recipients. 
They know that they were lucky to survive and they did incredibly heroic things as he did. But yeah, being there at the White House, you know, and, and, and I had to keep remembering he's very uncomfortable with this right now. To me, I'm looking around at, you know, all the brass that's there and the red, white, and blue and everything. And it was very, very special, but he was highly uncomfortable. Do you think it's important to pass on your patriotism? And I already know the answer to your children and grandchildren. And how do you do that? Oh, that's a great question too. Um, yeah, and all of them know, and and they know they they've gone with me to so many different events, and they know. In fact, two of my children uh, tried to be in the military, and I say try because it is hard to get into the military. About roughly twenty five percent are denied because of health reasons, uh, maybe a little bit more. And both my daughters were denied because of health reasons. Uh, one wanted to be in military intelligence and the other one wanted to be a combat medic. To me, that counts that they went in, they signed up and then they were denied. And that was heartbreaking because they, they, you know, you think long and hard before you go in to sign up. That's not something you go, oh, I think I'll just do. So I was incredibly proud that two of my daughters would want to serve our nation. So to me, that counts. Um, their health just didn't allow. My son uh, grew up always wanting to wear red, white, and blue, red, white, and blue shorts, red, white, and blue socks. Um, when he came home, he served for a church mission in uh, Colombia, spent two years outside the country, and we knew how much he loved his flag. And so when he came home, we put in his room, the entire back wall was covered with the red, white, and blue flag. And, and then he came home to a, a lot of di um, disruption and unrest and and he, I remember him texting me one time, I don't recognize my country. And that made me really sad that here's my 22 year old son wondering what happened to his country while he was gone. All my kids are very patriotic themselves and that makes me really proud of them. And yeah, I'll keep doing that with my grandkids. I've got three of them. The oldest is five. How cute. <laughs> I know. I like to put them in red, white, and blue. <laughs> That's so fun. We talked about kind of how this country is in turmoil right now. Lots of fighting, mm -hmm. lots of bickering. Do you have hope for the future? I do. I always have hope. I'm, I'm naturally optimistic and I've seen what our country's been through and, and I saw what we went through in Vietnam. I, I spent a lot of time, a full year researching Vietnam and how um, disruptive that was and how it tore apart our country. It really did. And then we came together in the 80s and maybe too much excess in the 80s. And Desert Storm was phenomenal way to come back from Vietnam War. It really was. In fact, I interviewed so many general officers from Desert Storm who had served during Vietnam. And for them, this quick 100 day war, and it was a righteous war, it really was. That was a quick one. We, we were able to uh, rescue Kuwait and give Kuwait back. Uh, to the rightful owners. And that was a 100 day war. Their expected casualties, we went into war uh, with the full support of the United Nations and, and our allies. We were expecting about 10,000 minimum casualties for Desert Storm. We had about 150. So if you're going to do a war, they did it in the best way possible. And so when we came back, they had the parades that they never had for Vietnam. And the Vietnam veterans made sure that they were treated right. And from then on, our veterans have been treated right. 
that was a particular time that helped our men and women of the services know that they are appreciated, that they didn't get during Vietnam. So yes, I, I do have hope. I, As long as I see great men and women that are serving in our military, and I do, I just see phenomenal people that are giving up uh, the private sector to serve uh, in our nation's defense, I feel a lot of hope. I know we can get better. I know we can do better than what we have the last few years. And Charlene, what does America mean to you? Um, I wish I had something really profound to say. This but, is such you a know, hard first, question. <laughs> it is, it is, because it's like, oh, let's see, I'll talk for another 60 minutes. Um, freedom is such a broad topic, but I think to me, it means belonging. That's one of my favorite new words, is uh, not new, but but in terms of favorite words, um, that's become one of my favorite words. Um, I think America is a place of belonging and I think we're getting closer to defining what that means as a nation. We've kind of fallen into fractions and I'm hopeful that the next generation, they don't even see fractions. They just kind of see this is the way, and I think they are. They don't even see that there's different groups. It's like, well, this is what I grew up with. And that's what I felt down in Argentina when I went to the international school. I didn't see that I had a friend from Germany or a friend from Sweden. I just saw my friends, right? And, and I'm hopeful that America represents what it has always represented with the Statue of Liberty and everything. It's always represented the melting pot. That's what we are. We are a melting pot and all the great blessings that go with that and the, the great immigrants that come in the right way. And, you know, there, there's just so many, um, so many wonderful positive things about the way that America was founded. Our first founding father, I mean, um, there's so many favorite founding fathers, but I think of George Washington, that could have gone so many different ways. And, and the worst way would have him saying, yes, I want to be king. And instead, he didn't. And what did King George say? Something like, if he really did turn down the, the opportunity to be king, he's like the greatest man ever. Mm -hmm. I'm paraphrasing, but that's kind of what he said. And that's really what he did. And he gave that power over to Congress, such a significant thing. And as crazy as Congress is right now, it's kind of, I don't know if they're leading the craziness or if they're just a reflection of the craziness. <laughs> I don't know which, I don't know which, um, but hopefully Congress can step up a little bit more and, and be more of what George Washington hoped that they would do with that power, right? Absolutely. Well, thank you for sharing your American story with us. Thank you for the opportunity, Tina. It's so, so fun to talk with you about it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Another Fellow Patriot. Be sure to check the show notes for links to this week's guest. For more connection to the podcast, visit www.wethepeopleouramericanstory.com for social media links, patriotic merchandise, and to sign up for the We the People newsletter. And finally, be a voice, a strong voice, a voice for freedom. As Benjamin Franklin so eloquently stated, where liberty dwells, there is my country. 